in a little over two weeks, I will have my spiritual anniversary. God, in his grace, caused me to be born again in January of 1969, back in the olden days, as I've joked about in the past. So I'm coming up on my 50th anniversary as a Christian. And what's amazing is that a week before I was born again, I was still lost. I hadn't been regenerated, hadn't repented and believed. And so it was a Christmas like any other Christmas. Jesus was born. We all give each other presents, eat a lot of food, watch a lot of football on TV, and wait for the new year and the next cycle of special events. And there was nothing unusual about that Christmas just a week before God was to change me entirely. So as I'm coming up on my spiritual anniversary, I have much to think about and lots and lots to thank God about that he caused me to be born again, as some of the things we just sang in that hymn. And I don't know when your spiritual birthday is. I don't know that you have to have a day specifically, but you have to at least know there was a time when you were not a Christian, when you didn't believe, you were not a repenting person, and then by the grace of God, you began to believe, you began to be a repenting person. You don't have to know the day and the hour, but you have to know that you're a repenter and a believer. And I hope that's true of each and every one of you. What it is about this time of year, which is, I think, kind of um, unsettling, or um, there's an old saying, whatever is familiar, what, familiarity breeds contempt, that if you're so familiar with something after a while, it's no big deal. And the idea of Christmas is for most people kind of sort of a nice deal. It can be a sentimental deal. You can watch TV shows that are sentimental. You can view Christmas itself as sentimental, but not really get the big picture, not really get it as it was meant to be gotten. You've heard of the author C.S. Lewis, who was a professor at first at Oxford and later at Cambridge, and he became a Christian when he was 39. And he said, you know, looking at everything The big question was, would God choose to become a man? Because once God chose to become a man for the first Christmas, then Easter was going to happen. Easter is not the amazing thing, not that God raised his son from the dead, but that God would have sent his son in the first place on a rescue mission. Christmas is the great miracle. He said once God decided to bring his son to earth and he became a man, once he decided to send his son on a rescue mission, everything else was going to happen. So Christmas is, in a sense, the big miracle. God became a man, really? Let's read together in John chapter 1. Let's not look for the baby in the manger. Let's not look for the three wise men following a star. Let's not look for the shepherds in the field, shocked at the sudden appearance of angels and stadium lights, so to speak, all around them. Let's not think of Jesus or Joseph leading Mary on a donkey while she's pregnant trying to make it to Bethlehem. Let's not think about the census that Caesar Augustus required that made everybody go back to their birthplace and register. But let's look and see what our text says here. John, unlike the other three Gospels, doesn't, talk, doesn't jump into the details of how Jesus was born. He jumps into the details of something of what Jesus was doing before he was a baby in the manger at Bethlehem. And this sermon is all about the question, what was Jesus doing before he was a baby in the manger in Bethlehem? Was he getting ready to open a Hallmark card store in, uh, in Naphtali? No. Was he going to start a Christian radio station in one of the towns there in Israel? 
Uh, what kinds of things was Jesus doing before he was a baby in the manger? Well, let's read John chapter 1, the first 18 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who came after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's right hand. He has made him known. I wanted to give you a bigger picture of who Jesus Christ is, the picture that the creatures of heaven would have understood Jesus to be. It says in Ephesians 3.10 that the angels in heaven look over the balcony, so to speak, of heaven and see what's going on on earth, and they're shocked. They're amazed. They can't believe that God would leave heaven and come to earth, that God the Son would leave his throne and come to earth, and that he's saving a people. He's not saving angels. He's saving human beings. He's on a rescue mission to create a new group of people called the church. And they're going to be raised to a position higher than the angels. It says in the scriptures that human beings who are saved are raised to a position higher than the angels. You are a member of God's family. So we're going to, I'm going to try to show you six things during our time now. And uh, I do have a wristwatch. I left my sundial at home today, so I wore my wristwatch so I could follow time. And we'll see how this goes. First thing I want to mention, what was Christ doing before the manger in Bethlehem? He was eternally being the second member of the Holy Trinity, God the Son. He was forever God before he was the baby in the manger. He was eternally God. And this is important because, you know, while I can be sentimental about a baby in a manger, it's a little less sentimental and a little more actually unnerving and puts me in the right position to realize Jesus is God and I'm not. It's a big, big thing for any human being when they come to the realization there is a God and it's not me. If you've not come to that realization, I don't see how you can be a Christian because if you think you're God or something like it, then you're still in love with yourself. But the Bible says there is a God who has always existed and everything exists exists by his 
fiat declaration of his will, he declares that he wants it to exist. And he did this in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that. Jesus is eternally God. He has always been the second member of the Trinity. Christianity is based upon something that's non-demonstrable. I can't give you an illustration, but I can declare what the scriptures teach. There's one God who exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And each of the members of the Trinity are God, but there's not three gods. The Bible says there's only one God. You go, wait, I'm not a rocket scientist, but I've taken basic math. You can't have three beings that are equal and not have three gods. The Bible says there are not three gods. There is definitely only one God, but he exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's a mystery. God has not chosen to reveal how that works itself out, but we accept it because it's in his word. We accept his revelation. Christ is fully God. He's equal in attributes. He's equal in being. He's equal in worship to God the Father and to God the Holy Spirit. God the Father is equal to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Each of the members of the Godhead are equal to each other. All the attributes or or characteristics of God the Father are also true of the Son. The Father knows all things. The Son knows all things. The Father is worshipped by myriads of angels. The Son is worshipped by myriads of angels. You see my point. Not only has has Jesus been eternally God, but he's been eternally in an intimate love relationship with his Father. Our triune God is relational. And that has an impact on the universe because we're created for relationships. You cannot be a person who, and not recognize that God has made you to be in relation with others. He puts us in families. Frequently he makes most of us to be married. And that is part of how God has ordered his own eternal existence. In the, in the family of God, so to speak, in the Godhead, there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they have always loved each other. There was not a millisecond in eternity when they were not loving each other. There never was a time when the Father didn't love and relate to the Son, and vice versa, the Son to the Father, or either of them or both to the Holy Spirit. Our Lord Jesus Christ is eternally God, and he's been eternally relational. Let me give you some scriptures. I've been telling you concepts. Now let me give you some scriptures to authenticate that. What God's Word says about Christ being God and his inter-Trinitarian relations. In Isaiah chapter 9, a passage you frequently hear, hear read at Christmas, there's a prophecy given, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This prophesied one who is to come is none other than um, the mighty God and he's the same as the everlasting father. He's the prince of peace, Isaiah 9. In the New Testament, the apostle Paul, who was knocked off his horse, so to speak, in the middle of the Arabian desert in midday with a blinding sun, and some, some, all of a sudden something more blinding than a blinding hot summer sun is the appearance of God the Son in his glory and knocks him off his horse. Later, Paul will report to the Colossian Christians, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, for in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
In other words, Christ is God, just like God the Father is God. The author of the Hebrews says, long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. In other words, as Jesus would say, and in a moment I'm going to quote it, in John's gospel, Jesus told people, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You have no reason of asking, what's God like? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We just read in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and this being called the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, this Word, was in the beginning with God. When all that was created, we'll come back to that my next point, but he was eternally God with the Father. In John chapter 3, no one has ever ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, Jesus said of himself. I've been in heaven, I'm going back to heaven. In John chapter 6, he says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those that he has given to me, but raise them up on the last day. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? What will it be to you to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? I'm God. I've come from heaven on a rescue mission. I'm returning to heaven. In John 8, he says, he said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. In the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 3 and 4, Moses meets God in a burning bush. And he is blown away, of course, by this confrontation with God. And God says, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I exist because I exist. Moses doesn't have any small talk in meeting God and is blown away. And the idea, though, that I am is God's name. I will be that I will be. God's personal name his covenant name that he entered into with his people was Yahweh. But Yahweh is a Hebrew word that doesn't have much connotation for the average person. So in our English Bibles, it's rendered Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever you see Lord in all caps, that means God's covenant name. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Later in John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. One in essence, one in power, one in glory. In John chapter 14, he says, If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus says, you have no reason to say, I don't know what God's like. If you've seen me in person or in the scriptures, you've seen the Father. And then in John chapter 16, he says, I come from the Father, and I've come into this world, and now I'm leaving this world and going back to my Father. And then he prays in John chapter 17, Father... Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you, may, that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Before there was a world, before there was space, before there was the cosmos, before there was anything, there was only God. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't needing anything. He needs nothing. He's been eternally in relationships. 
It's not that he needed the people to love him. He had a perfect relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But Jesus says, you love me before there was anything else. That's going to come back to be important to us because we have a God who isn't needy, who didn't save us because he had needs. He didn't save us because, well, we're such sharp people. He could really use people like us on his side. He doesn't need us for anything. And when people like you because they need you, that means in some sense they're using you. God isn't using us. He isn't taking advantage of us. The Lord Jesus Christ is revealed in Scripture as in full equality in relationship with other members of the Trinity. In John's Gospel, John, more than any other Gospel writer, pulls the curtain back and says, look at all these verses that I want to write to you to explain what was going on before the world began. Let me pull back the curtain and show you what the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were planning and working out before the world began. Some of you who've come to this church and have come to understand the doctrines of grace were amazed at how Christianity was so much bigger than you thought. You thought, well, I need to believe in Jesus and get saved and that kind of stuff. And then you begin to hear, wait, there's a God who has an eternal plan? He entered into a relationship, with a covenant relationship, a special bonded relationship with his son, and he would send his son on a rescue mission, and he had his people marked out ahead of time. And this wasn't something on the spur of the moment. This wasn't something that God made up on the fly. This was an eternal plan to save a people. So if you've not ever gone to bed at night and pinched yourself with wonder and gone, why in the world would God have ever had his eye on me? Why would have God have saved me? Have you ever asked yourself that question? R.C. Sproul said in all the years of answering questions, he only had one person ever come up to him and say, why did God save me? Now people, why didn't God save my husband? Or why didn't God save my kids? Or why didn't God save Uncle Harry? And the things that people are concerned about. As if God did something wrong. But only one person had the humility and the biblical insight to say, why in the world did God save me? And scripture says in Ephesians 1, it pleased him to do so. It was his pleasure to save you. He loves saving sinners. And he chose to save you. And Jesus was the instrument through which he would save you. Peter says, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has now been made manifest or been revealed in these last times for your sake. Jesus came to earth to reveal the plan of God and to save sinners. So, what was Jesus doing before he was a baby in a manger in Bethlehem? He was eternally being God. He wasn't always a baby. When he went back to heaven, he wasn't a baby. But he was a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. Our second point, and that's, this is kind of mind-blowing, is before Jesus was in the manger in Bethlehem, he was co-creator of everything that exists. Everything that exists, from a snail in your garden to some supernova in outer space that you can only see from the Hubble Space Telescope, all this was made by Jesus Christ in conjunction with the Father. He was co-creator. We just read in John 1, All things were made through him. And in case we didn't get that. And without him was not anything made that was made. So he's saying the same thing a second time. Read my lips. Jesus made everything. Everything. In Georgia, which is covered with pine trees, there's always dead squirrels and dead possums on the highway. Roadkill, critter du jour. Every possum that decided to cross the road on that stormy night 
God knew all about it. He created everyone. Every pine needle on every pine tree, God made. Every mosquito flying around. Ever, every constellation. Every Milky Way, God made. Every molecule in your body, God made in the person of Christ. Paul told the Colossians, For by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He's talking about angelic creatures. All things were created through him or for him. Jesus made everything. And by definition, the creator is always greater than the creation or the creatures. In the book of Revelation, it shows the creatures worshiping Christ. And it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and they were created. Every living thing, every inanimate object, owes its existence to the work of Christ. Every star in every galaxy, every solar system, every microbe in, a, in the drop in a pond of water, you know, they say, well, space is pretty amazing. But some biology teachers in school will say, well, take a drop of pond water and put it under a microscope and look at all the microscopic creatures that live in a drop of pond water. God made them all. Every muttering atheist saying blasphemies against God owes its, his very, or her very existence to God. Every seraphim, every cherubim, every angel owes its existence to God. Every fallen angel, every demon owes its existence to Jesus Christ. Nothing exists that does, does not owe its existence to Jesus Christ. The baby in the manger created the galaxies, created the dirt under the manger, created the animals in the stalls, created the woman in whose body, from which whose body he was birthed. He was the one who created Mary. And here he is being physically born from her body. You go, that's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. God became a man. A third point, before the manger in Bethlehem, Christ was upholding and sustaining everything in the universe moment by moment. What does that mean? Not only did he create everything, but he didn't you know, wind up a watch and walk away. Everything is maintained millisecond by millisecond, or if you prefer, nanosecond by nanosecond. Everything is sustained by Jesus Christ every moment of every day. Everything continues as Christ planned it until the time and when, it's, when he's through with it. Every star functions exactly like he created to function. For every light year that it exists, every squirrel in the wood functions exactly as he planned it. And he sustains it moment by moment until the end of its existence. Every mountain, every glacier, every tectonic plate under the earth, every lightning bug, every garden snail, every human being, their existence is maintained because Jesus Christ upholds them millisecond by millisecond. Now, our Christ can work with or without secondary means. What does that mean? Or a secondary cause. Christ can just snap his fingers, so to speak, and I would cease to exist, or he can choose to let a heart attack or a disease take my life. But the point is that he upholds everything every second. He can work with means or without means. When you pray for someone who's sick, God can just make them well. And sometimes what we call miracles occur. People are miraculously healed. and Doctors go, I don't know how that happened, but you're okay. Other times he uses doctors in medicine. And why did the doctors and the medicine stuff work? 
because God ordained, Christ ordained that it would work. Not even that what we call human authorities on this planet could exercise their authority unless Christ ordained it. In John chapter 19, John, who was out in the courtyard, hears our Lord's interaction with Pilate. And Pilate asked Jesus some questions, and Jesus didn't say anything in his defense. So Pilate says to him, You will not speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Don't you know who you're talking to, stupid? You better, you better respond to me. I have authority over your life. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. You are not the final authority here. Jesus is the one in charge. In Colossians 1, Paul, again, writing to this little town in what we now call Turkey, says, Christ was before all things, and in him all things hold together. Have you ever wondered, inside just, you know, a little molecule, how electrons, how they fly around their orbits and they don't go flying off into space, what causes that? What causes birds to fly south in the winter? They used to say when I was a kid, it's instinct. People, no, it's not instinct. It's in their DNA. What's that? Well, we don't know, but it's better. It sounds more sophisticated than instinct. In other words, something makes certain birds fly south in the winter and go back again north in the summer. Something makes electrons and protons and neutrons stay in a certain orbit. What is that? It is the very work of Christ. What causes stars to give off starlight? You live in a privileged generation, and you may not be into astronomy and outer space, but the photos and pictures that have been taken from the Hubble Space Telescope have never been seen by anybody else in history. We see aspects of space out there that nobody has ever seen before except our generation who've had access to the Hubble Space Telescope. The author of Hebrews told his readers, Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. In Isaiah chapter 45, the Lord himself confesses, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. When Christ was the baby lying in the manger, he was holding the manger together. He was holding Mary's body together, who was holding him. He held the bodies of the animals together. He held the dirt underneath all of them together. Christ upholds all things. He is almighty God at work, even in sustaining the universe that he created and all of its inhabitants. You go, whoa, that's pretty big. I'll have to think about that. Well, think about that, because the baby in the manger is more than just a baby in the manger who grew up to be a man. My fourth point is before the manger in Bethlehem, Christ Jesus was the crown prince of heaven, ruling on the throne of his father as vice-regent. The crown prince of heaven. You have a king, and he may delegate his kingship and his rule to his son, who rules with him, and you call that person a vice-regent. He's assistant king, so to speak. He rules in this other person's place. It's a delegated authority, so to speak. Christ is the vice-regent to his father. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it makes clear that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ. Nothing happens without Christ's permission. I know of a Baptist pastor who lived behind the Iron Curtain and was arrested for his faith and tortured. His wife was taken from their home and interrogated. Their 10-year-old daughter was taken from the parents and interrogated at police headquarters. 
Life was very scary. And as the colonel of the secret police was interrogating this pastor, he says, you know, I can do all kinds of bad things to you and your family if you don't tell me what I want to know. And the pastor said, you can't do anything unless my God ordains it. And you can choose to kill me and I'll go to heaven and be with Christ. Or, you can, or my father can ordain that I should live and you can't do anything to kill me. Either case, I win. You're not in control here. Christ is in control. Which was very frustrating to the colonel who was not used to being told he wasn't a big shot. In Isaiah 6, which I preached on last year, I think, with you all. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled up the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. That's a plural reference to angelic creatures. Each of these creatures had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and then with two he flew. And one group of angels called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. So you can imagine this group of angels and one of them singing on this side of the choir, Holy, holy, holy. And they sing it to the other side and they, re- they respond in an antiphonal chorus, Holy, holy, holy. There's these angelic creatures around the Father saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, I said, woe is me, for I'm lost, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, the average person would read that and say, oh, he had a vision, I guess, maybe of God the Father in heaven. But that's not true. The New Testament says very explicitly, he saw Christ sitting on the throne. That was Christ in the splendor. That was Christ that blew him away. That was Christ that he made him unbelievable afraid. In John 12, 41, John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw Christ. In the book of Ezekiel, he has a vision, and he has a very tough job. He has to go tell his people things they don't want to hear. But he has this vision and says, and above, over the heads of these creatures, there were the likeness of a throne. In appearance, it was like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne, was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of being his waist, it was like glowing metal, like the appearance of fire all around him. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw it was the appearance of fire and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the rainbow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. This wasn't God the Father. Ezekiel had a vision of Christ without his glory being veiled as it was after his birth. We sang, hail in, you know, we sang, hark the herald angels sing. And we talked about his glory had been veiled so that it didn't blow people away. Well, Ezekiel had a vision of him. He says, I fell on my face. Book of Daniel, the same thing, Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, a title for the Father, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the appearance of Jesus Christ. 
These men had to do really hard things, but they were given a vision of a very great God such that they weren't afraid to do the hard things because their God was bigger than the hard things they had to face. Riley does the psalmist tell us to get ready for the king of glory. The psalm says, who's, who's going to come in? The king of glory, he shall come into the holy city. The Old Testament reveals that the crown prince on the throne would become a man. When, when Herod heard that there was to be a king born in Israel, he asked the Jewish leaders, uh, I haven't heard about this. He, wasn't, he was kind of a pretend religious person. Imagine that, a, a political leader who pretended to be religious. Anyway, uh, Herod said, uh, so where's this kid going to be born? And the rabbi said, well, don't you read your Old Testament? Micah chapter 5. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of, of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is, is from of old, from ancient of days. They knew that Bethlehem was to be the birthplace of the Messiah, he was to be this great one who was to come. The Old Testament reveals that the crown prince now came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 18, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this person, for this purpose I came into the world. I am God the Father's vice regent. I rule everything. Everything that's happening is according to our predetermined plan. When we do the Great Commission, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the crown prince. I'm the vice regent. I run everything in the Father's name. Everything's happening according to our express purpose. I could read to you a long passage here from John chapter, Revelation chapter 1, but you have John in the Revelation, in exile on a small island for his faith, having a vision like Ezekiel had, and like Daniel had, and like Isaiah had. And it was of this one who was the son of man, who was a king, and I fell at his feet as a dead man. I couldn't believe how glorious he was. And the Apostle Paul ends his great message on the resurrection with these words about how we're going to be resurrected and why. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 27, Then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power raised against him. For Christ must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. Christ is the one that you have to deal with. In fact, for those people who are foolish, if they reject Christ now, who are they going to meet on Judgment Day? Christ. He's been given the, he's been given the right to judge. You would not have me as your Savior, you will have me as your judge. We know that the Apostle Paul, earlier called Saul of Tarsus, was on a horse riding to Damascus in Syria to have Christians arrested. Something happened that knocked him off his horse. It was so bright, so blinding, and it changed his life. 
he saw the resurrected Christ with his glory not veiled, with his glory not hid from human vision, but an open display. The men who were with him saw something, but they didn't hear the voice that Paul heard. And it was Jesus calling to him. We read about Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. I could have read about John. And like Saul of Tarsus, falling down, because the sight of this one who is God the Son is so glorious, it blows them away. R.C. Sproul had a good point in one of his messages. He said, you know, people are always talking about they accepted Christ. And is so-and-so going to accept Christ? He goes, well, from what I read in the Bible, the bigger question is, is this great Christ, has he accepted you? Where do you stand with this great Christ? He doesn't need you. He's not having a pity party if you don't come to Christ, so to speak. But if you don't come to Christ, you'll be eternally miserable. And he said, I would rather save you now than have you be eternally miserable. The question is not, have you accepted Christ? Has Christ accepted you? My fifth point, and I'm working toward the end here, before Jesus was a baby in the manger in Bethlehem, he was worshipped and served by countless multitudes of angelic creatures. You go, I'm sure that's interesting, but why should I care? Well, for this reason, it shows the greatness of Christ that he controls multitudes of creatures who are much more glorious than all of us in this room combined. The Bible talks about angels, whether seraphim or cherubim or otherwise. It talks about them in certain tones that are not meant to be um, explicit or not meant to be um, fear-mongering or speculative. It's not like some of these books written by Charismatics on the Heresy Channel where I talk with demons and this is what they said and da 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 It's like, really? Um, are demons a good source of information? I mean, wouldn't they be like their father, the father of lies? Is that a really good thing to do? Anyway, but we look in the scriptures and God himself is called Lord God Sabaoth. You know, Sabaoth, that kind of sounds like Sabbath. No, that's not the word, the Hebrew word for Sabbath. Sabaoth means The Lord of hosts, the Lord God of Sabaoth is the Lord God of all the myriads of angelic creatures. One place in scripture talks about 10,000 times 10,000. You go, how many is that? A lot. Now, how great are these angelic creatures? Well, we read in the book of um, 1 Kings, I believe, that in one night, one angel killed 83,000 Assyrian soldiers. One angel killed 83,000 Assyrian soldiers. In the book of Exodus, chapter 32, when God is so tired of the ongoing rebellion of the Israelites who profess to be his people, he tells Moses, you know, look, let's just not play games. Tell you what, I never welch on my promises. I always fulfill what I said. I will give you the promised land, but I'm not going with you because if you just committed one more sin as a people, I might just exterminate a lot of you. So this is what I'll do. I'll send one angel. He'll exterminate all the Canaanites. You'll get the promised land. You just won't have me. And Moses falls on his face and said, God, what makes us different from anybody else in the world if you aren't our God? Please don't do this. We don't want an angel. We don't want the promised land. We want you. And Moses' intercession, which was a test for him as a leader, and God relented and agreed to go with him in the promised land. He said, I promised that I would be your God and you'd be my people. And I will whip you into shape. But the point is, one angel could have done the job of wiping out all the Canaanites. So what's the point? How great a leader must you be? How great a person or being must you be? 
that these myriads and myriads of angelic creatures serve you, and they themselves are great and awesome. In Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus was arrested and Peter pulls off his pulls out his sword and starts, you know, flailing away at the soldiers that came to arrest Christ. Jesus tells him to put the sword away and he says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my heavenly Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? A legion is a thousand. Peter, I could have 12,000 angels here like that. Blow all Israel away. Not just these guys right here, but everybody. I don't need your help. I'm almighty God come in the flesh. Everything does my bidding. I don't need your flailing away with a sword to rescue me. The armies of the heavenly host, the angelic brigades, are all at Christ's disposal. We serve a God who is in charge of the mightiest powers that exist. They're more powerful than, than hydrogen bombs, atomic bombs, all the things that men invent that are supposedly powerful. And as I said before, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, it says that the angelic creatures are marveling. They're learning from us because we know from Scripture that there was one angelic creature called Satan or the devil or Lucifer who rebelled, and a third of the angels followed him into rebellion. There's nothing revealed in Scripture of any plan to save any of the angels. They're all in, on their way to hell or in hell. But God himself sent his son... And his son got up from his throne and came to earth and became one of these dinky little human beings. And at the expense of his own life, he gave himself that he might ransom guilty, sinful human beings and bypass the angels. You're more important to God and his economy than the angels are. And he sent his son to save you. And Jesus is powerful enough to save you, though he bypasses all the angels. And the angels are like, can you believe this? Can you believe the son would do this? Can you believe he goes in there and save these little shrimps? And then what does he do with them? Does he get, let them work on his shrimp farm? Do you get to be a stable boy in a barn in heaven? Do you get to hang in the back of a garbage truck and be a garbage collector in heaven? No, all those things would be grace. There's no, he elevates you to the realm of being a son or a daughter. You are adopted into the family of God. Because of Jesus Christ and your union with him, God the Father views you exactly as he views Christ. He loves you as much as he loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know you don't believe the words as soon as I say them, but they're biblical, so I'll say them again. God loves his elect like he loves his dear son. That's not fairy tale stuff, that's the gospel. The final point, the other thing that Christ was doing before he came to earth in that first Bethlehem manger was this. He covenanted with the Father. Covenant isn't a word we use much anymore. We used to, used to talk about the covenant of marriage, but that's gone out the window for many people. And sometimes there's neighborhood covenants. You can and cannot do certain things in this neighborhood. That's not how covenant is in the Bible. A solemn binding agreement between two parties. Well, what is the covenant that God, the Father and God the Son entered into? We've read some scripture that alluded to it. The, the Redeemer who was ordained before the foundation of the world. The Lamb who was slain so to speak, before the fact. What's this going on? Jesus agreed to come at the Father's behest, and he wanted to come, and he said, I will go and rescue a people. I will redeem them from their sins by my death, and they will re- get my righteousness, and you can take them to heaven, and you can people eternity with the people who marvel at your grace. I will do this. 
And everything that Jesus said he did, he did to fulfill the Father's purposes for him. Listen to the New Testament. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you know that you're to be a sinner, that's the most amazing verse. Christ Jesus came into the world to save people like you and me. Paul tells the Ephesians, God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before the universe was there, God had already purposed to save the people. Matthew 25, Jesus says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. In Revelation chapter 13 and chapter 17, it says, Some people are excluded from heaven. Who was excluded from heaven? Everyone whose name has not been written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. God knew he was going to save you, and he sent his son to save you before you even existed, so to speak. It was prophesied and fulfilled that Christ came to do his Father's will, which was to have a perfect salvation. I'll close with some words of encouragement here. Jesus says, if you come to appreciate who I am and what, I'm, what I've been up to and what I'm doing now and what I'm going to be continuing to do, he tells the people in John 6, all that the Father have, has given to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you come to Jesus Christ, he said, I'm not going to push you away. I'm not going to say, oh, not people like you. Sorry, I have better taste than that. Everyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you believe Jesus Christ is God, come in the flesh? Do you believe he's the God-man? Do you believe he came on a rescue mission to save sinners? Do you believe that if you came to him, he would save you? The Bible says he will. The question is, will you believe him? In John chapter 10, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. God sent me to die. I came to die. When Peter said, No, Lord, you should never go to Jerusalem. This isn't going to happen to you. Jesus turned around and rebuked him big time and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. He wasn't demon-possessed, but he was standing in the place of Satan going, If I don't go to the cross, if I don't die, these people are all damned. There is no hope for them. I'm willing to do this for them, so don't try to dissuade me. John 12. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this reason I have come. I have come to die. I've come to die. I came from the Father and I've come into this world and now I'm going to leave and go back to the Father. Father, I glorified you on the earth by accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. I came to save an express number of elect sinners and I've saved every one of them by my person and work. You know, when you come to Christ, you should have assurance that no matter what you face, no matter how hard it is, no matter how long it lasts, that the God who saved you, who was the baby in the manger in Bethlehem, is able to to be the one worthy of your trust. 
The Apostle Paul at the end of his life can say, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded, I'm convinced, I get it, that he is able to keep that which I have entrusted unto him until that day. He can take care of me. I don't run my life ultimately. I don't control the universe. Christ does. And the baby who was born in the, ba- in the manger in Bethlehem that we celebrated Christmas is the one who I have entrusted my life and my eternity to, and I have full assurance that he'll take good care of me. If I'm an unbeliever, we can't look at him legitimately any other way than what the Bible portrays him to be. He's not just a nice guy. He's not just a baby in a manger. He's just not a good teacher. He's just not a sweet man. He's God, come to earth, who became a man. Let me conclude with the words of C.S. Lewis, and I'll I'll be quiet. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Christ said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, like on a level with the man who says that he's a poached egg, or else the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God come to earth, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and call him a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being some great moral teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus didn't come here to teach us how to live. Jesus came here to save us. And after we're saved, he will show you how to live. But he didn't come here as if we only needed a teacher. We needed a savior. Because we don't have the wherewithal to save ourselves, even if Jesus was our perfect teacher. We need someone to save us. And Jesus became a baby to save us. Amen. Let's pray.